0: you were born a hunter-gatherer you were born a social animal one that moves within the land and moves between bands in a world that was meant to be less measured less exact we were meant for lives with more meaning and less consequence a life where connection and meaning are implicit where animals have voices and trees have stories a world where rivers flow unabated and water isn't a health hazard a world without fences a world without flags a world without rulers and gods it's our world, the world of primal anarchy.
1: We're here to say that either the world burns or the cities do. We're here to say that abusers convince you that you have no choice. We're here to say that marketers convince you that you have their options. We're here to say that you are wild, that you can be free. We're here to say that there's a match in one hand and bulk hunters in the other. And we aren't here to say that the world is waiting. We are here to say that the world is fighting. We are here to say that their story only ends one way we're here to tell you that there are others.
0: Primal Anarchy Podcast is a collection of rants, tirades, condemnations, readings, musings, explorations, response, interviews, and iterations hosted by Primal Anarchist writers Kevin and Natasha Tucker.
1: Find us online at primalanarchy.org, all major podcast platforms, and the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Welcome to the Primal Anarchy Podcast. This is episode 26. It is May 25th, 2020. We are your hosts, Kevin Tucker.
0: And Natasha Tucker.
1: And we acknowledge that we are on occupied Susquehannock lands. Uh, We are really excited about this episode. Uh, So we have an interview with somebody we very much admire. Mm -hmm. We're very happy to be working with. Dina Dart. So we're going to just... Run through the normal, I don't know, opening stuff, the house cleaning stuff, and talk a little bit, introduce her, and get into that interview. And it is a really good one. We're very excited about it. Yes. So, uh, a couple things are house cleaning stuff. The book club. Go on to blackandgreenpress.org backslash book-club for more information. We've talked about it the past couple podcasts. Uh, We're excited about it. It's new. There's more information up there. We did talk about it in the last couple of podcasts. We're not going to go over all of it again. Our first book is coming up quickly, and that is the very excellent Terranolius by Sven Lingfuss. So, uh, if you're interested in that, check that out. Also, you can email us at end at blackandgreenpress.org with book club in the subject line. And we'll have more information about that. And we're excited about it. And, uh, yeah, we're eager to see where it goes. The first meeting for that book will be, uh, I don't don't know, do you call it a meeting?
0: I guess. Sure, we can call it a meeting. We can call it a party. Party.
1: (laughs) It is uh, May 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, So because it's the first one, we're still playing around with a lot of things.
0: And it Um, is going to be on a Zoom call, so we kind of have to figure out how that's going to go once we get started.
1: Yeah, so the first one's like a bit of a dry call. We'll probably end up having, I think we'll probably end up having a second conversation about this book.
0: Yeah, I think uh, we're so we're gonna start with this one, and then there are some people who ultimately this time won't work for them, or um, they need more time to read the book, and then we'll we, we can make a secondary uh, meet up, or however, really however many we need to to accommodate everyone.
1: That's what we're looking to do. We're looking to accommodate everyone and make it a good experience. So get on that list if you're interested, and let's do this thing. All right. Yeah. Uh, We've talked about the Kickstarter a bit. The Kickstarter is started. The Kickstarter is for the second edition of John Zerzan's Origins Reader, uh, new and updated, and then the other book we're extremely excited about. I'm extremely excited about is Natasha's new book, Rights of Passage, which does also include the novella Liminal, which has been which was published under Black Green in 2014. Quickly sold out. It's a smash hit. And also as a part of this, we will be putting out the audiobook of Liminal. Uh, mm-hmm. which we did include in the last episode as well the uh prologue and the first chapter mm-hmm. as read by our friend ryan morgan of the band misery signals uh so we're all excited about these things um we are still doing the 15 percent for all sales through black going to indigenous mutual aid that is a problem that is not going to be solved anytime soon we're mm-hmm. still in this weird era of coronavirus uh people are talking about like we're in the first is already done but
0: is there a link to this on our website uh can people sh- find it easily because i feel like it would be something that's nice to be able to find the link and share it also
1: yeah i uh if we have not put it up there i will put it up there in this episode but the website is indigenousmutualaid.org.
0: Because if we have All this easily available to people, we would just ask that people share this fundraiser around um, so we can raise some more money for yep. the cause. That is and we thank you for that. Thank and thank you. you to everybody who's already contributed yes. during this time.
1: Very, very stoked to have that going on. And also very appreciative to everybody who supports black and green press and the books that we put out always if you're hearing this podcast or you're new to the podcast check out blackandgreenpress.org this is just one part of a whole slew of things that we have going on we're both mm-hmm. writers and uh we've got books that you should check out if you're interested in this check those out that's as much of a commercial as i'm going to give right now so uh let's see um we do have we we're, are excited about this episode uh because it is an interview it is our first time running a full interview uh we also did an interview with Shellis glendinning uh who is a huge influence for both of us for books my name is Shellis and i'm in recovery from western civilization Mm -hmm. and off the map Mm -hmm. massively influential for both of us
0: yes and she was a wonderful interview as well and we're working on editing that and we'll have that out as soon as we can
1: yeah the audio was not Ideal. We will say
0: that. Right. She's in Bolivia. So it was a little, we had a little more technical issues. Um, But it was amazing to talk to her. Yeah. I mean, she's definitely one of the people who, um, I mean, was really formative and in sort of like my. My, I don't know what you would call it. We don't use the word philosophy is what I'm getting up on here. (laughs) Development. In my development, yeah, as a person and um, in understanding the world. And so it was really amazing to be able to talk to her about things. Yeah, as far
1: as talking about trauma and healing, civilization, domestication, she's pretty unparalleled. She's foundational for both of our
0: work. Oh, for sure,
1: yeah. So that's exciting. But uh, we're going to be going to having... We're going to be having more interviews going forward. we got a number of people that we've got lined up. If there are people that you're interested in hearing us talk to, you should email end at blackandgreenpress.org, which they put in the subject line.
0: Interviews. <laughs> Slick <Sleek. laughs> Slick bud oh, no. uh, Put interviews in the subject line And let us know who you're interested in um, Hearing us interview We are looking for ideas And um, if you know somebody who's doing uh, Some amazing work uh, I think we'd be interested in And um, people who have something to share Along the lines of activism Or um, any of this stuff that we talk about Please let us know We would love to um, find, about, find out About what's going on out there And talk to people
1: yeah, and uh, so the last couple episodes we've been building a bit more and talking more about like the intent directions that we're taking with primal anarchy, um, and if you have not listened to the last episode which is really uh, us discussing what is primal anarchy and why it is important, what it looks like, what it means, and uh, particularly a little bit about the variations between uh, primal anarchy and anarcho um and why those why steps were taken away from that term, uh, or away from whatever that that Mm. kind of trajectory a bit uh in this more specific direction we really laid a lot of the foundation for the discussion that we had with dina Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: i i think that like this is a very natural follow-up to that discussion uh but i would strongly encourage that people if you have not listened to that one go back you don't have to pause this one you can listen to this one you don't need to listen to them in order but Mm. if you have not listened to that episode uh, new to the podcast or not, that's that's a great place to start. Um, particularly, I, I know a lot of people are apparently relatively new to anarcho uh in the world and uh, are arguing with leftists online and things like that. Uh, that so, sounds so stressful. It sounds very <laughs> stressful. So do yourself a favor and listen to this. Hopefully learn from some of the mistakes that have happened before and also thinking that Left is going to suddenly change trajectory, and things are going to ma- be massively different. You know, it's really it's really important for us to say we're done with the Western tradition. We're done with the theoretical philosophical frameworks that have burdened resistance movements. They they don't work. They're limited. We can move on from that if we don't need it. that's our whole approach. If we don't need it, we can move on without it. Mm-hmm. And there's a much stronger lineage that goes back all the way. Mm-hmm. Through our line as humans and before, and uh that's a much better starting point, and that's something that we're we're really interested in pushing on and really interested in maintaining
0: hmm absolutely so uh so. so um about Dina, Dina Dart is coastal Shumash and mestiza descending from the indigenous people of the Californias. Her scholarly and professional work strives to address the incongruities between public understanding, representation, and true acknowledgement of Native peoples, their cultures, histories, and contemporary lives. She earned her master's and PhD from the University of Oregon and has held curatorial positions at the Burke Museum of Natural and Cultural History and the Portland Art Museum, as well as teaching appointments at the University of Oregon, University of Washington, and Northwest Indian College. She recently completed a writing fellowship at the School for Advanced Research where she revised her book manuscript for publication titled Subverting the Master Narrative, Museums, Power, and Native Life in California. Uh, and Dina serves on the boards of the Oregon Museums Association and the Confluence Project. Um, and so she has she has uh, worked in consulting for years now, mm-hmm. consulting with museums, um, Large, Very large museums, some of them, and um, other institutions who um, who need some help decolonizing, basically. To say the least. <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so her business is called Live Oak Consulting, um, and her website is liveoaknative.com. Just a super brilliant and interesting woman. Um, highly educated and super passionate about her work. Um, we were so lucky to be able to talk to her today at length about so many different things.
1: Yeah. We met her in the rewild conference back in January Mm -hmm. had a little bit of exchanges with her prior, but, um, yeah, I mean, she's, we'll be talking to her often. Like, she's just like, I don't know. I don't even want to, I get, I get very excited about it. It's a very awesome interview. It's Mm -hmm. a very good discussion. Um, I guess we don't need to recap the entire thing because we're about to hear it.
0: Yeah, we're, we're, this is kind of like our first interview that we're putting out there like this. And I feel like Kevin and I were like, okay, well, what's the lead into the interview? But really, the interview is the lead into the interview. <laughs> As
1: most listeners are probably like, we'll get to it. Get then. to the interview. So, you know what? Let's get to it. Mm-hmm. And then you will hear from some more from us afterwards.
0: And just a big thanks again to Dina for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, the conversation with her was just. Absolutely amazing and we hope you all enjoy it. Thank you. So hello Adina. Uh welcome to the Primal Anarchy Podcast with Kevin and I. Uh, we are really excited to have you on and to be able to talk to you. Uh we met you sort of briefly at the Rewilding Conference in Portland this year, um, or earlier this year uh which was really a, a really sweet conference and um we did meet a number of interesting people and we really enjoyed the conversations we got to sort of start having with you so we're excited to have you on today to continue some of those thank you for coming on yeah i'm i'm excited to to
2: be here and it was fantastic meeting you and i've made so many incredible connections through that rewild rewilding community so um yeah let's keep building on that i'm i'm excited to be here
0: Yay.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so would you like to give a little introduction to who's Dina?
0: Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit, uh just a little bit about yourself and um your work that you do and we'll go from there. You bet. Okay.
2: Um well I, I always start off by saying Haku Haku Shumawish Tipa Shumawish, um, which is the Smoowitch, um, the, the language of the coastal Chumash, my um, my mother's people, um and what I said was um, hello, hello, and Shumawish is our word for health, and um in the Smowitch language, um our um our uh, word for health is a verb, it's an action word, it's something that you you're doing you're actively doing or you're actively undoing Mm -hmm. and it's also a plural so (laughs) we don't have plural verbs in the english language but um it's basically something that it it, um signals that we're doing this together so we're Mm -hmm. actively doing health as a community and um and if we're trying to be individuals we're actually not doing health and so um, it links all of those together, and it is the way that we greet one another. To as a reminder that, um, you know, hello, um, we're in we're in a healthy community together, and um, so it's basically a reminder.
0: <laughs> that is absolutely with one beautiful. <laughs> that um, is absolutely beautiful. We have to stop right there and just say thank you for sharing that. <laughs> you give me one clap.
1: That's the, yeah. That's, that's awesome.
0: I feel like that answers so many questions we would have to ask right off the bat. <laughs> well, thank you for this interview. <laughs> um,
2: so, um, so, so I always start by by um, uh, greeting you that way, and also um, providing an, a, a description of the the greeting. And um, so, I am Kosal Chumash on my my mother's side, and that's the. Um, the people of the Santa Barbara coast and we actually occupied all the way from uh, San Luis Obispo in the north down to Malibu in the south and inland about 100 to 150 miles and um, we're still a very active community um, or should I say we're an active community again after three subsequent (laughs) waves of colonization and um, almost complete obliteration. but we're a we're a healthy active community now um paddling our canoes and weaving our baskets and speaking our language and um and um and practicing our our cultural traditions in that landscape where we can it's it's a very expensive place to live um so many of our people don't actually live in Santa Barbara any longer um it's difficult to be indigenous to a place that everybody on the planet wants to live um and where the real estate is some of the most expensive in the, in the world. Um, But so, so that's a little bit about my, my cultural background, um, my heritage. And I, um, I came to, I'm currently in Oregon, and I came here to go to school in 1999. And my plan was to get my bachelor's degree and then head back. But I stayed and got my master's and then my PhD. And, um, and then I met and married my my daughter's dad and so I'm kind of a permanent resident now in in Oregon um and I love it here but it's it is difficult being far away from my community Mm -hmm. um we're doing a um, zoom language class tonight which is nice I'll get to see everybody but um yeah and so so my degree um my my studies were all about um the, the forces at play in further marginalizing us in our homelands and um, and I ended up really sort of on this track about visual representation and um, and so my dissertation looked at 54 institutions that tell our story um, along the Central coast and um, you know how they're doing that what what are the dominant narratives and um, and how um, How are they either creating allies or not? Um, How how are they um, asserting that we are the indigenous people of that land or not? Um, Do they have a active role in the fact that we are not federally recognized and there are no federally recognized tribes along that central coast? Um, And what I discovered is absolutely yes, they are part of that uh, invisibility and reinforcing that invisibility and, And so my work since has, uh, has been about, um, you know, museum work, primarily curatorial work and, um, and trying to unsettle those, those false narratives, the ones that, uh, you know, um, have us, uh, disappeared extinct and, and don't allow us to engage in, um, in modern contemporary life because, because the the dominant narrative and what people really believe about us is that we're either we're either all gone or that we um or, or that we live in some primitive way. There's there's a lot of really um, pervasive stereotypes and um, and we believe that those representations continue to uh, keep us out of um, all of the f- spheres of influence where we where we really need to be. And um, so, so now mm-hmm.
0: I'm, you know, now my work, this is a really long introduction. Oh, but, <laughs> you're wonderful. like looking at each other, just going like, oh, she's so good. And she's saying <laughs> so many powerful things. Yeah. So yeah. My work now, so I've mostly worked
2: with museums. So I was a curator at the, at the Burke Museum and had a teaching appointment at the University of Washington in American Indian studies. And then I had a curatorial appointment at the Portland Art Museum for five years. and then. I just had to get out of the I tower institution i uh, you know I wasn't able to really exercise my my sort of inherent activism in those places. I was really mm-hmm. limited mm-hmm. so and I really saw the need for um, advocates or support for the native people who are trying to do that work like they you know I was a I was a one native person. In this institution that was built to um, render us invisible, <laughs> and trying to make us visible, trying to you know, you know, be an influencer as well as you know, gathering the community of Native people mm-hmm. and um, and making their materials accessible to them and um, and trying to heal some of those historic wounds. Um, and so while I was there, I was so painfully aware of how isolating that role is and how. Um, so somebody needed to be out in the world, providing support for those people without being, without the limits of being employed by those in that institution, you know? So, right. so now for the last two and a half years, I've been consulting and that's the work I'm doing. So I'm doing what has turned into sort of decolonization 101 trainings or cultural sensitivity or indigenizing the museum kind of thing. And I'm also doing curatorial work, so I'm um, curating exhibitions and uh, writing catalogues and, and all facets of museum work um, that um, incorporates a Native perspective or seeks to engage Native communities for, for that perspective. But then what's happening now is a result of associations with Rewild and um, the Columbine School and other folks at that, that circle, the sort of environmental stewardship, permaculture movement is really also trying to engage with Native people. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to help them as well. So I'm doing decolonization trainings for some of those those environmental organizations now as well. So.
0: That's amazing, Dina. I'm so glad you've been able to uh, find a way to blend that work that you're doing, the advocate work and the, um, say, like the work with the institutions to bring that all together. Yeah, yeah, me too. And the the
2: coolest part of that is that the institutions are now paying me,
0: right? (laughs) (laughs) They're paying
2: me to come in and tell them them how to do it. It's really amazing, and and I can tell them, I can say whatever I want, basically, because- I
0: I love that so much. (laughs) Actually, since you just mentioned the word uh, decolonization, could we start there? I think most people, hopefully on the the planet are listening right now, do have some concept of what that word means. But could you just start out by basically defining that as to sort of like what you think it means in the world right now and what it means personally to you? Yeah, thanks. Um,
2: yeah, it's big, and it's become quite a buzzword too, right? and um okay. and so probably your l- listeners have an idea of what what it is, what it means, um but not or or at least the definition, but um but most folks don't know what it means in practice, you know, right. it's right. it's it's um it's nice in theory, but it's really messy in practice so um you know um ultimately decolonization is about extracting the colonial um, power that um, that sought to crush us out of existence right and um and um and then looking at aspects of settler colonialism, you know the the ongoing um you know, the continual unsettling of indigenous people and marginalization of indigenous people for the purpose of usurping their land and resources. And, um, you know, it plays out uh, lands that have been colonized already for a couple hundred years, you know, folks will think, oh, colonization was an event, you know, it happened with the arrival of the pilgrims, or on the west coast, you know, with the arrival of the Spaniards, Um, and and that is true. Those events, cataclysmic events, um, characterize the, you know, colonization, but there are these aspects of settler colonialism that keep the, um, the ideas of manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery, you know, fully entrenched in our daily lives. And so decolonization is, you know, an attempt anyway, um, or the, the action or the activity involved in decolonization is the attempt at extracting at least shining a bright light on, on, you know, where these, um, dysfunctional ideas came from, and mm-hmm. trying to extract them from our lives, untangle them from our lives, so that we can um, s- start recognizing how dysfunctional they are. Mm-hmm. And in in my work, my work in the museums, um, it's literally about, you know, shifting policy and bringing in Native people um, to to represent themselves, right? To um, to access those ancestral belongings and to um, and to to bring them back to life and to I mean because they're essentially incarcerated. They've been incarcerated since they were collected or stolen and put in those museums. And so, you know, so so the word decolonization is a little bit of a misnomer right because you're never going to to decolonize a colonial institution like that unless you just bulldoze the thing and give everything back to the native people um so we we sort of talk about indigenizing efforts or indigenizing practice um what are the things that we can do to um, shine a light on dysfunctional uh, rules policies behaviors um, recognizing where they came from and the white supremacy behind them. Um, and then, you know, doing something different and that something that's more democratic and that allows for space for native ways of knowing. Mm. So, and, and so, and decolonization now has become quite a buzzword in the environmental movement as well, as you know, and, um, and it too is a, you know, um, it, it, the environmental movement itself is a, is a, you know, it's a Western idea. It's a set, a set of Western ideas. And so can we decolonize it? Well, probably not. It probably, you know, um, we probably need to create something new or recognize this is what exists and how can we indigenize practice within the environmental movement and, you know, among environmentalists, um, So, and, you know, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean extracting all the white people and sending them home either, right? Because um, many of us are mixed heritage people now, myself included. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, it's about, so it's not about color, it's about thought, really, and philosophy and values. And, um, and recognizing that this is, this is, um, you know, America, this is Turtle Island, and there's a set of Processes and um, values and ideas that that um, are inherent to this place and, um, and and the you know the DNA of the ancestors who who practiced you know all of those indigenous values and and um, policies if you will you know have been here for thousands and thousands of years. The way to steward Turtle Island is 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 by pausing and recognizing that there's. There's already knowledge about stewarding these lands, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm waxing philosophical.
0: <laughs> no, again, this is so—it's just perfect, you know. You're—you're you're such an eloquent speaker, and you obviously have so much knowledge and just so much like visceral heart for the subject. It's beautiful to hear you speak about it.
1: Yeah, and also, I always have claws out whenever anything philosophical is being <laughs> mentioned or anything like that. You're doing the opposite of waxing philosophical. You can talk about concrete things. It's not like, uh, you know, this isn't a trolley problem. I mean, you
0: know? <laughs> the thing is, too, I think I keep saying to Kevin, we cannot define the terms that we're using too often or too much. Like the term decolonization, it is kind of everywhere right now. But Mm -hmm. I I find, too, sometimes with a buzzword is people know it. They audibly recognize it, but they might not really even know what that means. And so you can't participate in an active way in a concept or an idea or a movement unless you can understand it so well, sort of like heart wise, like inside of yourself, then you can go from that place, you can identify those places within yourself where that dwells and you can look at those places. But if you can't really get a handle on even what the term means in a sort of personal meaningful way, you yeah. can't you cannot incorporate it into your life. Yeah. So, thank you for defining that for us.
2: You bet. And I also think that um because people um don't either take the time um or or, or just make some assumptions, they just reject it out of hand. Um, Oh, that, you know, and I and I see it among some of my Native colleagues that will just like, um, there's no such thing as decolonization, we can't decolonize. And I always come back and say, Okay, well, then let's come up with a better name for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to be in action. And we have to teach others how how to be in action. And if we just throw that baby out with the bathwater. And, and that, that's like throwing up our hands. Like, so we have to be able to, um, sort of draw a line around what it is that we're doing and, and, um, so that we can, so that we can share that with others. And it has to be it, you know, in order to get people interested, involved, they, they have to feel like they understand it, like you said. And so we, we have to, you know, we have to have a word for that. And indigenizing is problematic, right, because indigenizing assumes that there are indigenous people leading the effort. And um, and that's problematic, especially in terms of the environmental movement I'm seeing, because there's all these environmentalists that feel like they need to have an Indian on their on their board or they need to, you know, or or they need to have consultants. And it's true that that is the ideal, but there are not enough Native people to to do all of that work. Like Mm -hmm. native the native people that that currently have the knowledge, traditional ecological knowledge and um and the the kind of knowledge that's gonna save us as a species, (laughs) those people are working diligently for their communities. They're Mm -hmm. not gonna go spend the day with your environmental organization in Portland, you know, just because you're gonna pay them an honorarium. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and and there's this assumption that now, as white people, we're we're woke and we want to involve native people that they're that native people are going to run to their assistance, and um, and that's just not always going to be the case. The, so the the first step in this decolonization work is to you know do your own, and I'm not talking to you two, but
0: uh, <laughs> but. Come do on, lay, work. It, lay it on us, Dina. Lay it on us. <laughs> I'm sorry,
2: I was too busy
1: working my Dreamweaver. <laughs> did, did you say something? <laughs> to
2: do your own work, you know what I mean. And then also, like I'm working with a group right now um, that's equally weighted, non-native and native folks on this board and it's awesome like think tank we get together and we like how do we you know how how do we do this like what does what does an ideal model for you know a um an indigenized uh land stewardship practice what does that look like you know and Mm -hmm. can we create a model for um for land stewardship environmental workers you know and um and one of the things that i that keeps coming up is well if there if there aren't enough native people with this knowledge how can we support tribes to um to to create those young scholars those young experts you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so that's you know that's maybe where the the big chunks of money need to go you know if if what we need are more native scholars then how do we support um, our native, you know, friends and colleagues to, to share, to spread that knowledge outward to the, not to the, not to the non-natives necessarily. Um, but you know what I mean? Like creating internships and, um, and opportunities to send young people into these archives to, you know, to unearth some of that old information that's been hidden away in Washington, DC, or, you know. Um, interns to spend time with some of those knowledge holders because they're, they're old, you know, a lot of those people. And, um, but most tribes don't have the bandwidth to, you know, grab up their young people and sit them down with their old people. And you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. they're, they're working jobs and, and, and trying to live their lives just like everybody else who's scrapping in this, in this dysfunctional country, you know? (laughs) right
1: <laughs> um, so i mean you hit on so much like we're gonna have to have you on the podcast obviously regularly n- regularly <laughs> if you, you, you will have us, <laughs> they like so many notes on everything but and again just like the echo what natasha's talking about when you're talking about i mean they need to read like the, the rephrase and read contextualize like, all these concepts, and I mean, it's, people use this stuff to be dismissive all the time, they're like, well, fascism isn't happening right now, because it doesn't match a 1930s definition, decolonization isn't looking the same as, like, the more imperial process that was happening after World War II, it's like, it just, the terms change, like, like these yeah. things weren't cast in stone 70 years ago, and that's that, so it's like, times do change, and I think it's really important, and I think it's awesome that that's such a functional part of the work you're doing and that's something that we're really interested in i mean like no word is too sacred to us to like not be like all right we can we can change around from this and in fact like um like I, I think i've talked to you about it a little bit like with the podcast with the things that we're doing the work we're doing like i would aligned with anarcho for 20 years and i mean i still like have a degree of me that will always be an permantivist but it's like also the term and the category didn't, didn't we, it's outgrown. There's, there's problems with the name. There's problems with like a lot of different contexts within it, but realistically we've just moved on. Like there's, there's, there was questions being asked. And I think at a certain point you have the answers. And I think that for us, a lot of this stuff, you know, it, it, it must exist within context. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, that's going to change. And I think that what, what we tend to see is a lot of confusion and maybe a lot of people just feeling, uncomfortable or unfamiliar with certain concepts that leads to a lot of like strange things I've sure seen even with the term indigenizing it's let a lot of white people be like oh, I get to become indigenous it's like pop the brakes like <laughs> that's that's <laughs> not where that was supposed to be going but i think that there there is a good chance here for this conversation to take the more like earnest step of trying to confront it head on by just saying it's like like, Miss Hosh and I were both, like, Eastern European mutts. Like, we're not going to sit here and try and present this as, like, this is the this is the indigenous perspective. It's like, okay, like, we're coming from the Connors as the settler colonizer side. We don't need to sit here and try and, like, reinvent ourselves as something we're not. It's just like, this is where we're coming from, this is where we're going. We have a more earnest discussion, more earnest conversation by just saying, this is where we're at. This is the role we have within civilization. Like, by all means, white supremacy is a, is the foundation of this country, if not the continent. Uh, so like where, where is our struggle and how does it align with other other struggles? Like how do how does decolonization like how is it a as a, a lateral for, for lack of a better word, like a lateral struggle, rather than just saying like now we're going to talk about decolonization as though it's it impacts us the same it's like these things are coexist by necessity they must coexist and it's better to have a a earnest discussion in which it's like there's no pretext other than saying these are these things coexist rather than just saying we all need to try and find a way to to fit ourselves under the decolonization umbrella it's like this is a different struggle yeah
2: yeah well it yes absolutely um However, I I, I think that um, that because we're in the US and that that people stay rooted in the fact that all of their efforts, even if they um, even if they're not employing, um, you know, and hopefully they're not just going about employing like Native American cultural customs, even if even if their work has nothing to do with Native Americans, you know what I mean? Recognizing that they are on indigenous soil. And, um, and then there's a whole set of things that go along with um, with decolonizing work, right? And so um, I think that that's key. And that a lot of a lot of folks feel like, well, you know, I don't, my work doesn't directly affect native people or it doesn't um or you know what I'm doing, I'm not, you know, I'm not from here or my um or my practice, you know, whatever my practice is, is not appropriating, you know, native traditions or whatever, and so it shouldn't be offensive to native people. The bottom line is all of the if, if you're in the US you're standing on Turtle Island, you're standing on indigenous soil, and so there is decolonizing practice that you ought to be engaged in, and um, and so that the humility that goes along with that um, is um, is difficult for a lot for a lot of folks. For most folks, I'm working with a group right now um, at a big major um, institution and. We're we're on week three and there's still there's still so much white fragility and, you know, just a refusal to to have any humility at all about, you know, the fact that, you know, everything, everything we do in our lives on this continent um, has an impact on on the people who were removed and relocated and whose ancestral DNA is in the soil, you know.
0: Mhm.
2: So, um So,
0: it kind of um like it kind of gets me thinking about the term historical trauma, right? So, we've there's so much history, so much terrible, horrifying, horrific history here, right? On this on this land that we're now all sitting on or you know, a part of occupying. Occupying. Thank you. Um how do we start to unpack that trauma? So, like, I know in my own personal work, grief and mourning have been a big part of my work and writing and in my personal life to move past traumas that I have experienced in my life or to or to at least be able to integrate them into the rest of my life. Um, Could we touch on or could you touch on a little bit the idea of historical trauma, Um, how it is can be very difficult for those of us here today from many different cultures and communities to feel that we're um, complicit and participating in this very destructive system and how do we start to move forward to heal from those things as a collective and also um, while identifying the fact that we have had different experiences within this culture and within this civilization so how do we honor those things how do we act as allies to one another and kind of where do we go from here with that healing process yeah that's a that's a great question um
2: yeah i mean so so just to unpack the term a little bit um historic or intergenerational trauma um according to the research um actually manifests more seriously um more um uh, or or worse if you will with each generation Mm. so um so that means that um the children of the boarding school era um uh, the way that they conducted their lives had such an impact on their children that that subsequent generation was actually more um wounded than the original uh um population and then the grandchildren are even more impacted so with 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 each generation um there's actually more manifestations of trauma so um domestic violence addiction suicide um and so so it's it's a um it's a, it's a real thing. It's, and you know, it's, what's interesting is that the word trauma also gets tossed around and, and I hear people and and not to say that you are, I, I hear the seriousness in your
0: question, but lay it down, um, lay it down, you <laughs> know, we're not above. We're, not
2: above. <laughs> we're here to are agitated too. I can't believe the number of people that the <laughs> number of non-native people in my trainings that'll say, I'm feeling triggered. I'm feeling trauma triggered. You know, it's like mm-hmm. real people. Um, but, um, so, so recognizing that, that it's, it's a real thing and that the manifestations of that trauma are evident on, in all reservation communities and, um, it's serious and hard reality. Um, and, um, so, so one of the things, right, the, the first step, for anyone who's unfamiliar and, and wants to, you know, embark on this decolonization work is to just become aware of that. Like mm-hmm. the this notion that, that colonization was an event, um, if that were true, then we'd be, we'd be fine by now, right? <laughs> we, we would have adapted and things would, but, but the mm-hmm. ongoing traumas of continued alienation and continued you know, an alienation from our own stories and our own, um, our own experience, you know, one of, one of the exercises that we do in my training is, um, is having the, um, settler descendants read out, um, the settler privileges, things like when, um, when I die, I can be confident my language won't die with me. Mm Um, I can turn on the television and see meaningful representations of my ethnic group. Um, I am confident that the cemetery down the street um, isn't going to get um, dug up for capitalist uses, um, unearthing my great-grandparents, you know, for, or or that they're going to get dug up for scientific study. I mean, there, there are these things that most mainstream Americans don't even ever think about, but um, but the, the re-trauma that occurs for Native people um, living in this society, this occupied continent, um, is serious business. And um, so, so you're right that there's different um, healing practices for um, and different, you know, a different set of things that, that Native people are doing to cope. With that intergenerational trauma, and it is different from the settler communities' um, various aspects of of trauma and traumatic um, experiences, and so it's not necessarily work that we can do together, but it needs to be happening simultaneously mm. because um, because there's there is definitely trauma involved in just being part of this. Uh, settler colonial society, right, that Mm -hmm. just participating in capitalism, um, we're aware of the exploitation that our consumption, um, you know, requires of people, you know, Mm -hmm. the vegetables that we eat, the, you know, the myriad things that we wear and use from China. Um, So, it, if we, if we all got very honest with ourselves about the way we were living as mainstream Americans, it, we would certainly feel a, a sense of, of deep pain and, uh, and would need to do our work. Right. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people just don't do it with their work and just keep consuming and ignoring and, um, and for native people, um, that's just not really an option. You know, there's there's always a threat that the government will terminate their existence as a tribe and that they'll become homeless or, you know, the, the, the rates of suicide, the rates of domestic violence on reservations are through the roof. And so there's real dangers that are happening um, in Indian country. But um but Nancy and I, my my co-facilitator in the trainings is an is a white woman of great privilege. Her grandfather was the treasurer of um Chevron Oil. And um and all of her, all of the family's wealth came from extractive industry. And she's an artist. Like she's been able to live as an artist most of her life because she has a ton of money in the bank, right? And so um our stories could could not be different, any more different. Right. And so we bring that um, disparity of privilege into the training room and we're best friends and we love each other. And we've been through, you know, a lot as she's gone on her journey of self-discovery, you know, she has stepped on my toes more times than I can count. And I, you know, have carried a great deal of emotional labor in that relationship to, help her get woke you know anyway and so she you know she deals a lot with the um the pain the discomfort um I don't know if it's it could be considered trauma but um she has things that have happened in her life that have definitely been traumatic um but the intergenerational trauma looks way different um, in her family than it does in mine, right? In my, in my family, it looks like mental health issues, homelessness, you know, institutionalization. That's the way it looks in my family. In her family, it looks like, um, a little bit of alcohol use and, you know, Uncle Harry is a dirty old man or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so, um, So yes, it's, it's, it's huge, Natasha, and not to, not to laugh or make light of it. It's, um, it's a, it's serious business. And if we're going to do this work and, and if we're, uh, frankly, if we're going to survive as a species, we're going to need to come together and do health together as a bird. And in order to do that, we all have to get really, um, really honest with ourselves and take a, a good look at our privilege and also, places where we're wounded, you know, and, and do do our work to um, to patch those things up, you know, so that we can move forward in a good way. Otherwise, we're just carrying that baggage into the next thing, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah,
0: for touching on all of that. Also, I'm just kind of laughing because we were, Kevin and I were kind of joking with you about the greeting that you shared in the beginning, but really all the answers are in the greeting <laughs> that you shared in the beginning. we're just just expanding
1: (laughs) upon the very first thing you said Uh uh-huh because
0: language is so powerful and it was it's all in there
1: that's the core yeah Uh, so i mean and something we talk about a lot is like domestication the domestication process there's 8 billion people on this planet there's 8 billion ways it can fuck us up as individuals but like they when you throw any kind of systemic injustice or ongoing thing on top of it it's like these are just layers so it's like i mean it's it's not like there's an ownership over trauma or something like that but you have to recognize everybody has to recognize life is very different for other people like that's like you you can't just go on i mean like white people can't be like i've had trauma so therefore i don't have my privilege it's like do. Yeah. Nah, no right
0: we also can't sit here on this land acting like we have had the same experience as part of a settler culture that the so like the land that we're sitting on we can't pretend that the indigenous people that were here weren't uh, the completely um, uh, targeted and uh, that genocide didn't take place here. Like we can't pretend that those things didn't happen. and people we can't act like them. they we well we can't act like they didn't happen, and we can't pretend that our experience is the same as the indigenous people that were here before we our people came here, yeah. We just can't. Like, that's ridiculous. So we have to say that out loud. It's not the same experience.
1: And we also have to tell you, no, your great-grandma was not a Cherokee princess. (laughs) Unequivocally, she was not. Um, (laughs) But I think that, um, like, so I want to just, like, touch on this retrauma a bit and, like, talk about, like, some of these things. I mean, I think that they really need to be, like, expanded upon. I think it's, like, there can be such... A, a lack of understanding when when people like I think white people's immediate reaction is like stop blaming me. It's like okay, that's <laughs> or stop making it about you. Like individuation and individualism are rampant issues that are going to prevent any kind of healing, which mm-hmm. is the reason why civilization makes that and, and particularly modern technological civilization has made that such a core. It's like you. You're meant to feel like everything is your personal responsibility or personal failing. So it blurs that line between like complicity and blame. And it's like, no, you just have to recognize, not just, I mean, but it, you have to start with recognizing what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, I, um, I, I grew up Jewish uh, and I grew up, actually I was like raised to be a Zionist. Like I, it was like pretty extreme end of it, but there was never a question or there was, there barely a moment that went by that there wasn't some iteration of my existence being a reflection of the idea that like I am the survivor of like culturally a survivor of genocide Mm -hmm. and like that was always there I mean there's like you know I mean the temple would take kids out to see Schindler's list in groups and it's just like you know the reason I was I was grew up a Zionist and I wanted I, I thought I was gonna go to uh Israel to join their army when I was a really young kid. I mean, fortunately, way out of that. (laughs) But, like, um, uh, I was like, I'm going to go to Israel and fight Nazis. It's like, well, turns (laughs) out Israel is just an open air concentration camp guard for Palestine. Uh, And then it turns out now Nazis are all over the streets here, anyways. Uh, But it was such a huge part of that culture, such a huge part of that, more than any other tradition that I would have gained. To have known that our identity was based on being exiled and uh, refugees and movement, but also the victims of genocide, and it changed the relationship that I think I most most Jewish people have with like the world at large. Um, and, And in a lot of ways, obviously, I can go in a number of directions. But to to talk about trauma and to talk about like systemic. Injustices and this this aspect of re-trauma, it is like impossible for me to understand how much different things would be to not have had that process of genocide validated by the world at large, outside of like a handful of Nazis and outside a handful of Holocaust deniers. Um, like the the fact that like the, I mean, unquestionable. Like the we know that the depopulating, like the the murder and the systemic. Uh, aspects of colonization in the Americas resulted in 50 to 95 percent of the population being killed off, as individual societies, individual tribes, individual bands, but also like in mass. And the process of relocating people. I mean, again, I I, I love that you keep pointing out this is event, not a process. Or I'm sorry, this is a process, and not an event. That's a huge aspect that we have to keep coming back to because I don't think people understand like the historic way in which we've looked at the world is very much a byproduct of colonial might and colonial hubris. Um, but these things kept unfolding and just relocating people alone often can lead to that same thing. We see this with animal populations. We see this with human populations, 50 to 90 percent die-offs. Like we are people within context. We have this whole thing, this whole community rooted is a thing. But to have been removed, to have faced these, these systemic means and these ongoing efforts of genocide and ethnocide, And then to have people continually say, well, it didn't happen. That adds such a layer to the trauma and such an importance to why the decolonization work is going to look one way within indigenous societies and lateral support work is going to look completely different. Mm -hmm. These are different things. These are different angles of the same thing. And there still is that aspect of like needing to just even recognize this is genocide. And, um, like, and in the, and the ways that it plays out are ongoing and you talked a lot about like things that have happened a lot on reservation but also like off reservation uh, and this is a massive kind of topic but it's something that I, I think that like the audience of this podcast in the world needs to be more aware of um, missing and murdered indigenous women mm-hmm. uh, these kind of cases where it's just absolutely the pitfall of colonialism lies in the fact that indigenous women are are murdered wildly, and nothing is really done about it Mm -hmm. ever. This is a massive thing. It's an ongoing thing. It happens in cities. It happens off reservations, but um, I had an interview uh, with Patty Stonefish. I ran a little bit off of uh, last year on this podcast and she's talking about man camps uh, or the pipeline camps that run alongside indigenous reservations. And there are actually no laws to enforce uh, penalizing, arresting, or doing anything about if a worker at a man camp rapes a woman on a reservation or within reservation boundaries. There's, like, all these loopholes where there's literally zero way to actually charge them. So it's – I mean, this is, like, the ongoing frontier. I mean, none of these things are said and done. None of these things are over. But also, like, these are – the reason that that happens is because we're not even – as a, as a culture, not even saying this was genocide. This is still a process of genocide and the genocide is ongoing. Uh, and, uh, one last thing about this, but like, uh, this book I'm writing about missionaries, uh, and, and colonialism, uh, really come hard on this, this one anthropologist who had worked with the Aceh in Paraguay, who at, at their lowest point had been reduced to 32 people. Um, And he had followed up with, like, other reports about genocide that were happening there, and it was being reported on to a certain degree. And then when he ended up writing his ethnography, he's like, well, we can't say this was genocide, because if we say this was genocide, then we have to say that every act of colonial interaction with indigenous peoples in the Americas was genocide. So it can't be. It's like, it's the most patently absurd thing i would ever heard, but that's really the scale of it. Mm-hmm. Is that people are just like, well, it's all done and over with anyways. And it, if it was genocide, then we would have said it was genocide. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just keep thinking about that, the re-trauma of that and just like how passively people are about about the pure genocide
0: that happened on this continent. Well, combat. and how complete the erasure has been. Yep. Um, it's horrifying. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and um, because of that, and you make good points, Kevin. Because of that denial, um, imagine how hard it is for us as Native people to point out <laughs> to folks that there are ongoing impacts. Um, ongoing impacts of what? What you know? Oh, there can't be possibly be ongoing impacts of something that happened two, three hundred years ago, and you know. But you're. Um, it is it's a that that denial is so pervasive that um that we that, that we have very few true allies and um and so it's it's always the the angry indian woman you know um which is you know really why i i'm doing the work that i'm doing to try to provide support for um native people you know Making these these incursions into these very hostile environments, places that have to maintain the denial and the um and the false narrative in order to maintain its authority, right? Like a big um, natural history museum, mm. if, if if it acknowledges the, I mean, think about it. If there was a big natural history museum in Poland that had all the Amazing Jewish materials in their vault, um, and um, and rarely consulted with Jews. If every everything was gathered during you know the 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 war, during the upheaval, during the genocide, all of that, you know, and all of those belongings were neatly assembled in um, in collection storage, and the. Jewish families the descendants had to make appointments to come and see their their ancestrals ancestral belongings um and the narrative there was about you know um, the harmony between the Jews and the and the Third Reich you know i mean um Ugh. right yeah and, well um, instead that, you know I, I, go ahead well instead it it brings me to thinking about the um the Trum revolt the um, that that Kevin had said he wanted to speak on, about too uh, you know instead, we have missions that are are basically concentration camps much like Auschwitz. Um, that that perpetuate a narrative narrative of uh, harmony and labor and um, you know and the bringing of, of the gospel to the Indians and um, instead of a site of conscience like Auschwitz right that tells the story from the Jewish perspective and um, and and the you know the truth. <laughs> not just the not just the jewish perspective but the actual truth right instead of some flowery narrative and and um and can you imagine they turned auschwitz into a garden with fountains and and it was a place that you'd go and picnic because um you know bec- because i don't know i can't even i can't even push that an analogy any further but you get it <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, these these huge institutions, these natural history museums are really a perfect record of genocide and colonialism and some of the most horrific things that have happened on this planet to date uh, in the natural world and in indigenous communities and across the board. I mean, I mean, the work that you're doing is really completely flipping that narrative, which for sure is just like so important and has to happen. It's, It's absolutely telling the story from a different perspective but you'd think that that work would have already been done right or that the people I that it would
2: have been right? um yeah. or that the people that inside those institutions would would predominantly recognize the need for healing um not you know not the in the minority there there's always people inside those institutions that totally get it um but then there's like their board and their director and you know others that are that that are just you know business as usual this is you know these are these are items that we need to hold in perpetuity for the public good, you know? That's and
0: really deeply disturbing, actually. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It
1: really is. I mean, it's like the whole process of, of history is all about this hubris. It's all about all these different aspects of just saying, like, this is the narrative. And I mean, that's why we, we both of us love the fact that, you know, you keep talking about narratives, like, we're a storytelling animal. This is what we do. We, yes. This is who we are. This is how we relate with the world. And, like, we keep having all these issues where we were like believing a narrative and we're not looking at it as a narrative, but the whole historic process, the idea of looking at history as a number of events and in encapsulating them in museums. I mean, it, it absolutely is all these things. And and I just want to even get back to the fact that you're saying like an analogy to talk about missions as concentration camps. Like It is not an analogy at all. I mean, that's, it's a, it's literally the same thing. And, um, like, there's there's definitely always issues with the fact that uh, the Holocaust gets to the capital age, and people are like, you can't compare these things. Like, well, fuck, you can't. <laughs> like, the entire <laughs> purpose of a mission is work will set you free. The the prov- the idea that we're going to, like, decimate, and then whatever's left behind, the kill the Indian save the man, like, core, is like, we're going to get you to the point. We're going to try and lure you or force you into these missions, and then we're going to make you agrarians we're going to make you work for your freedom or work to become one of us work to become acculturated and it like for some reason people continue to grant goodwill to the work of missions and um i'm even worse than some of the stuff about you know like imagine what what kind of picnic area some of these grounds could be we're we're like maybe an hour away from you know the carlisle uh Mm-hmm. military base that was carlisle indian school wow. uh, or the carlisle resident industrial residential school wow. uh, it's still an active base and there is when you go into it the security checkpoint is alongside or one of them is alongside the cemetery for all the native children mm-hmm. that died in coming to carlisle indian school or in the process of you know trying to break them they died and there's like a lot of unmarked graves it's i mean it's it's horribly disturbing but here it is the entryway for a still active military base like (laughs) there's no analogy here this is this is ongoing
2: yeah yeah and it's so painful to acknowledge right so painful when you acknowledge your complicity in that that um that it's no wonder that people have chosen to um act as if and you know and it it's not as if you know um nancy and i talk a lot about how you know it's not your fault but it is your responsibility to take take you know take um acknowledge your role today in the re-trauma and um and Conscious in your actions, you know, and um, and so I guess back to Natasha's point about like where do we go from here? Um, you know, there there's there's so mu- there's so much work that can be done now um, or that's being done now to address these things, right? There's all this right white fragility work, and which is a good really good place to start. There's um, you know there's a growing uh, body of literature on settler grief so there is a you know there's there's a, an element of grief that goes along with um, well we're all suffering you know we're all grieving and um, there's a there's a um, a native scholar named Martine Prechtel that talks about how um, collectively we've never grieved and um and so we're all just sort of holding our breath <laughs> and until this, until we recognize how important it is that we grieve we you know we won't be able to like let that breath out and um or to really connect reconnect with the earth like mm-hmm. we we really need to acknowledge that um that the the separation that um that we were indoctrinated, you know, as um, as mainstream Americans to to buy, you know, the whole uh, the whole um, melting pot idea, the whole you know um, immigrant idea um, is is really a denaturalization, right? And um, and so it's so important that we that we heal that grief and trauma. So that we can reconnect with the land and in, until we do that I really like if as people are in denial about the genocide that occurred on these lands and they're walking on these lands you know on on soil that has the DNA of my ancestors in it um how of course they can't connect with that land until they you know until they uh, acknowledge that um to be here requires that acknowledgement and, um, and the, you know, the grieving that comes with it. Um, so, anyway, I, um, this is where folks just, you know, the, it's, it's not up to me to tell people, you know, what they, um, what they need to do but in order for us as humans to heal our relationship with the land we have to be um, accountable mm. to the um the disturbance that we've created to the land and by wrenching the people of the land off of it and sending them somewhere else the land grieves the this this
0: place grieves for its people
1: mm.
0: And Thank you, Dina. Thank you for just how consciously you're answering these questions. And there's so much beautiful thought that goes into your work. And, um, I mean, we're just really thankful you're here with us today. And we're really conscious of your time too. So, um, maybe we'll just touch on a few more things and, um, then try to wrap up. But I mean, really, this is just such like, it's just such like, uh, It's just like just heart based work. It's so it's so visceral.
1: Yeah. And we would love to be having a regular conversation with you. This is as well.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's there's I mean it's I feel like it's just the tip of the iceberg to really start talking about these things. Yeah.
1: Um so I mean I wanted
0: to Well, you know me. I can just go on (laughs) and
1: We can do the same. Go ahead, we we definitely appreciate it. I mean it's good to have other people who are driven to do the same. Um, but I think that like, we were just talking about in terms of like grieving and uh, I mean, the trauma does go into the soil. I mean, like these are the land is grieving and it is, there's a, a, a very real loss. And, um, and this is something that Natasha and I were talking about amongst ourselves last night, even as like, you know, these, the the work of rewilding like, there's all kinds of problems with the terms. We, we just, throw that out there Mm -hmm. Uh, like there's all kinds of issues that come up with like people not knowing how to approach things people not knowing how to necessarily take all the steps forward but it's like the narratives that we have tend towards simplicity and that makes it one thing that so it's like if everybody's feeling like an individual and feeling like they need to be held accountable for all these things and they're like i guess i'm a settler colonizer and that's who i am or something like that like it makes it kind of insurmountable to approach it from that position is like, but I think that the the thing that we're doing and and obviously it's, it's actually a part of your work is like the narratives need to air towards complexity, not simplicity. And these, these stories need to expand out. And part of that means that this way that this, this intently fragmented relationship civilization has with the world is the core of this problem is a, a core of how it perpetuates itself. It's a core of like why, you're you're feeling like the sum of all your failures, or the sum of all the things that you've, the identities that you've purchased, or whatever. I mean, like all the existential crises that come with civilization, that feed on this, feed onto and into the systemic issues. They're all wrapped up in this very fragmented way of looking at the world, and it's a psychosis that civil that we have put onto everybody else. And so, um, I mean, for us, like one of the reasons we talk about. Uh, primal anarchy and one of the reasons we're like trying to like wrap these things up into like one idea is to undo this idea that there's a rewilding movement an ecology movement, an environmental movement uh, you know, feminism like indigenous rights indigenous struggle, support, solidarity like you can't separate these things. The reason that we have approached this situation the way we have the reason we've gotten in this situation is because we're like isolating every aspect of it and <laughs> we've got
0: we have little buddies too hi little buddies
1: i hope they're disapproving (laughs) (laughs) but um i mean so like we've got this really fragmented way of viewing the world and and it's making it so it's like people are like well you can either be involved in ecological struggles or have this biocentric view or you're going to look at it from this other perspective it's like no if you're talking about an actual community if you're talking about a group of people tied to the land then all of these things disappear this is like we we can't impose the psychosis upon land-based societies and that's the problem that we're having so it's like there should never be a point where ecological resistance is going head to head with like indigenous struggles uh, but that's kind of what that's kind of the perspective it has and i think that that idea of saying it's like now you need to understand this. Like the land is feeling this The land is all this violence resonates with the land physically, biologically and socially. And this is a part of that community. But for lack of a better word, community is the part that tends to be missing mm-hmm. from like, let's say Western based struggles
0: or settler culture, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Settler culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within that, like resistance movements based from settler cultures and Western traditions, we have that tendency to focus on resistance too, like that's the the problem with like revolutions and the problem with all these like Western ideas, which we're very much saying like if you're going anywhere with this stuff you have to abandon those Western traditions. Um, but they tend to look at things in res- terms of resistance to in this like really philosophical sense of like this is what we're going to get to get to once we fight off the powers that be.
0: And there is a lot to resist. I mean, absolutely. We've touched on a a number of those points today. There is so much to resist.
1: Yeah, but it's another thing to present it from the perspective of in defense of. Right. And I think that that's what are we
0: fighting for? What are we working towards? What are we? What What is the? What's the point of the fight? Right. Yeah. So I mean, and oh god. Well,
2: no. But finish your thought. I'm sorry. Uh,
1: Uh, so, but I guess I, the the reality of it is is that I mean I've been looking at like looking at the issue of revolutions for some time now and trying to understand it's like why revolutions fail and indigenous resistance movements or struggles are are ongoing and like they're, they're so radically different it comes down to this like it's one thing to kill for a philosophy it's another thing to die for your community in uh, order to fight on behalf of your community and to fight for something that you actually know and integrate with. And I think at the core of like Western resistance movements or like the settler colonizer idea, it's like, we're fighting, there needs to be this recentering. I think in in terms of like understanding that culture community and the land itself are need to be at the core of what you're fighting for, rather than just like this knee jerk reactionism of like, well, let's fight this thing off and then we'll get to the next one. And we'll just like, see how, how these ideas that, Uh, a dead white guy in Europe thought of 150 years ago could look at was like all the existing aspects of like anarchistic societies that have existed. Didn't have philosophers. They didn't have ideologues. They didn't have old white men describing what they could look like. Like it's, I think that there just needs to be. uh,
0: Well, what world are we trying to build? Really? Well, here's the thing
2: about, about the idea of resistance Mm -hmm. So, um, Western medicine is all about, um, fighting disease, right. Um, taking something that's going to fight the pathogen and, um, and, or kill the pathogen, right. Mm -hmm. Western medicine is full of that kind of language. Whereas, um, native medicine is about restoring balance. It's, it's not about, it's, it's, it's not, um, about resisting or about fighting. It's not, it's, it's, the focus is on wellness and um not on illness right and um and so it's so you know there there may be fighting involved but the the center of um of what we need is res- the restoration of balance mm-hmm. and um and so i would argue um that rather than you know thinking about resistance to or resistance from or um take resistance out of it right what, what we the focus needs to be on the restoration um on the creation and um and in that process there there will be you know there will be little battles right but the but the center of that um it's about community. It's about—I mean—it it does center the things that you're talking about, Kevin. But it takes the um, it takes the emphasis off of resistance and and uh, and fighting, and places it more squarely in the health of the community, the health of the land. Um, we do whatever we have to do to maintain the health. Of the people and the land and um and in some cases that means you know occupying a a big space in order to keep a a pipeline from going through Um, but we didn't go there to fight right Mm -hmm. we or, or or to resist we went there with the 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 goal in mind to you know maintain health For our communities and um, and to uh, create community as a um, as the life force that will of course in essence resist but the focus wasn't in resistance it was about maintaining health the health of that river right and the health of the people downriver Um, so
0: um, well maybe it comes back to your greeting actively doing health as a community. It does
2: it does it does, <laughs> and that involves um, doing your grief work, you know, really feeling the stuff, um, you know, recognizing the the impacts of you know the trauma that's being held handed down, the trauma that's in the land um, and and working to restore the balance in the land and the um and the and the balance to our to our communities and to, and, you know, the reality is that we're in, we're all in this together there, you know, um, you, you are, my you are part of the, my community now you two, and I'm part of yours and we're part of this. And, you know, ultimately we're definitely in a community, um, of, you know, trying to advance our thinking to a place that's gonna, that's, that's gonna move into healing for our world right and so we are in this community of of activism and and um healing work so
0: absolutely yeah we feel exactly the same it is we are part of the same community and so how do we how do we hold hands through that work you know how do we how do we make sure that um our community members have what they need to do the work they need to do and and vice versa yeah we we Skype. That's what we do. Yeah, <laughs> we are
2: on Sunday afternoon.
1: <laughs> That's how we do it. So, in bringing all this back and talking about uh, restoring balance and things like that, uh, you mentioned earlier about Shmash and the three waves of colonization. Uh, if we just, I know this is like a the big hitter for <laughs> like kind of a. A final question on our side, but um, for for now, uh, are you? Would you kind of speak about the three waves of colonization and also the Schumacher revolt of eighteen twenty four, which is, I must say, a very exciting version of restoring balance.
2: Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, so I, I I won't go into great detail. There's a lot that's been written and um, and many native scholars that are um, are writing that California Indian history now. Um, but so, you know, the, the first wave arriving um, largely in, um, in California, in the upper part of California, Alta California in 1769, with the establishment of the um, San Diego mission, which was the first of 21 outposts that were established mm-hmm. in California, um, between the, what is now the, the border with Mexico and uh, just above San Francisco, and you know the purpose of those um, outposts uh, that that be, that were um, missions, what we now know as the Franciscan mission system, um, were to to baptize, Christianize the Indians, and turn them into a workforce. And um, and so um, over the course of the next 20 years, they did just that: established those 21 missions and um, enslaved native people and put them to work and um, and you know baptized them and um, stripped them of of their um, or at least attempted to strip them of their connections to the land and um, and even to each other and you know um, huge swaths of of um, of people died and and um and it was so my little dogs have been without my attention now for too long
0: little little dogs we promise we're going to give you your mom back in just a minute (laughs) so
2: anyway so the
0: the mission system
2: operated largely until um 1833 when the um mexican government uh secularized the missions and um and turned them into basically into ranches and and uh, gave away much of that land to um, the soldiers who had occupied California for Spain Um, and um, and then in uh, the mid-1800s the U.S. I, I won't go into all of the wars that occurred to um, enact this but you know the 18 1849 um, California became um, a state of the United States and um, and so those those waves of settlement the Spanish the Mexican and the US American um, each had policies and ideas about what native folks should be doing and how they could serve them and um, and so um you know we think of the spanish invasion being the worst because it had you know the, the first um most devastating impact but the us had policies for uh, indentured servitude which was basically slavery and and um and they had posses that would go out into uh, existing Indian communities and kill the men and, and bring the, the women and children in and enslave them. You know, it was just heinous. And it, the um, so that history, the California history is so dark and and hard, you know, and the fact that we are, as Native people, um, still asserting our Native identity after, you know, being bludgeoned in that way for a couple hundred years um, is a miracle. Right. But but the the genocide continues because now there are white anthropologists who um, have taken it upon themselves to um, do their own mission records work and decide who is and who isn't really Indian and who shouldn't be enrolled in this tribe. And um, and so, you know, so so we see big disenrollments in some of the the larger tribes. And um, anyway, so the genocide is is very much ongoing um however in eighteen twenty four as kevin alluded to um there uh was a um a very uh strategic resistance uh, uh revolt against the mission system and you might even- you might have more details of the um the actual event kevin than than i do at this point but um but it it was uh Organized by folks in all uh, four of the Chumash area missions, and um, they um, they were able to escape. Big number, large numbers of them escaped, burned some buildings, stole horses, uh, fled to the inland valleys, and um, they did send uh, you know, hunting parties after them and, and brought many of them back and, um, and made examples of them on mission grounds. Right. But, um, but many of those, um, people survived in the inland valleys and there is research that that suggests that because those, those Chumash, um, men spoke Spanish, They were and had horses. They rose up to the level of leadership among the Yokuts peoples um, because they were able to communicate with all the people coming coming in. And um, so they were they were powerful. They could they could they could ride horses and they could speak Spanish. And so they had a skill set that the Inland Valley folks um, needed in order to be able to communicate with the, the, the outsiders. So anyway, there's a lot more to that story, but I, um, and over the next couple of years, I'm going to, I'm going to really dig into that research because I'm doing a, a large exhibition at the Autry Museum in LA Mm -hmm. and the, the, the 1824 revolt is one of the stories. It's not the, the story, but, um, the story, the primary narrative is about our connections with the the people in the South, right? Um, To raise awareness of the fact that um, most of those folks detained and and those children in cages are our relatives. Those, um, we have been moving up and down that coastline for thousands of years. And um, in 1824, we resisted colonization. And in 1924, Um, There were two pieces of legislation that were passed, um, one, to make American Indians uh, citizens of of the U.S., um, giving them the right to vote. At the same, then this very same year, they passed a piece of legislation to start manning the border. So essentially what they did in 1924 was make American Indians American and Mexican Indians Mexican and um, and you know, and keep them from moving up and uh, up and down that coast. And so, um, so I want to bring awareness to these acts of resistance and the ongoing domination and separation of us as indigenous people to the Pacific coast. And um, so, so anyway, I'm going to have, I'll have to be digging into the the research on the Chumash revolt. I only know, um, you know, bits, bits and pieces about it. <clears throat> it's a,
1: a big part of what we're focusing on in terms of like you know focusing on formal anarchy is like drawing that this this lineage like we were all born hunter-gatherers that's just this is how we've been shaped as humans it's how we interact with the world but captivity uh, looks very different in every society but that underlying impulse has always existed and there's always been this revolt against it and i mean Mm -hmm. I I don't like the revolutionary kind of perspective of being like, yes, bloodshed. I mean, like, this whole thing is (laughs) incredibly unfortunate. It's not like having to murder missionaries isn't something that somebody, like, necessarily wants to do, even though the temptation would be there. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's just like, no. Like, we're not, like, pro-colonization because then there's defense. It's like, no, that just should not happen. This Mm -hmm. just should never have happened. But this this lineage of resistance is just ongoing. And I think that when you you look at it as you're doing this work that you're doing, the point isn't just to be like another historic event. Mm -hmm. It's just like, this is a line and none of these things ever end. And if we just look at these things as events, then we miss the bigger picture and we miss like the, everything that's happened. But like by looking at it, understanding this situation, by understanding what missions have always sought to do, And the role they play in the frontier and advance of civilization, then we see how these patterns of domestication work. And that's never not going to be true. And it's like, it further Mm -hmm. underlies the fact that, you know, you're not seeing white supremacy rise again. You're just seeing white supremacy being much more overt
0: again. It's stepping out from behind the curtain. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Dina, as we move towards wrapping up and give you back to your doggies, um, we've talked a lot about community here today and sort of how do we, how do we build community in a larger sense and, and what that process looks like. Um, and we just want to ask you, you know, is there anything that you need presently to do, to, to do your work? Do, is there anything that your community needs? Like, are there ways that we can, that people can plug into the work you're doing or, um, Maybe you could just talk a little bit about ways to get involved, if there are any, and then if you have any closing thoughts that we didn't touch on, um, we'd love to hear them. Hmm.
2: What a what a lovely, generous question. I, I um I I really need to give give that some thought because um, I'd love to be able to answer you more
0: directly and say yes. Please send your donations to www. Sure. <laughs> and and we, I'm sure if you would love, if you would be willing, we'd love to talk to you again. So we, it's something we can revisit later. But, you know, as we, as we do talk about community, community is, it's an idea, but it's a physical thing as well. And so Absolutely. I think we really need to start asking each other openly and answering that openly. What do you need to do your work? Your work is important. What yeah. do you need? What do your people yeah. need? Well, thank
2: you. You know, I, I mean, ultimately, like the, 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 the first step is for people to start doing their own work right and like the i suspect you have listeners all over the country if not all over the world and you know so the first step is find out about who the native people are that were that that live on the land you live on or that were removed from that place and you know know the history of the land so that you can start to heal your relationship with it that, that is key that's really important um, in terms of support that I need personally um, I, you know the the more I think about it the more you know I want to try to build a coalition of people like the three of us um, that are um, that want to do this work together you know I, I'm I'm not a person who believes that um, you know, that native people have their work to do and that, that non-native people should stay out of it or anything like that. Like like we're we're in this together. There's work that we need to do together. And so um so let us, you know, think about that. What does that look like to start creating coalitions of people who want to restore balance to to the their home you know to this home place? And um, and, and that first step is recognizing who are the local Native people and how can you support and align with their goals and values. That's key. Um, and, um, yeah, I, yeah. And, and I think, you know, we have these these technology, these technological tools at our disposal and we are sort of, at at this point, we're kind of bound to them. So let's find ways that we can utilize them to to build this coalition. And, um, so, you know, I would say this to you and to any of your listeners, um, reach out to me if you have ideas or support for how we can do that. And, um, you know, if, if you have, um, ideas about how to grow this, this movement and, um, yeah, I mean, and if you live in California, recognize mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, recognize that that there um, there were indigenous people all over that coastline. And if you don't know who they are, um, find out who they are and support their efforts. The Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation um, is is my tribe. We don't have we currently don't have a tribal office. We have no land. Um, All of the work we do is very is grassroots because we really have nothing. And um, and that's um, some of the most fertile, um, expensive real estate on the planet. You Mm -hmm. know, we don't have access to it. We don't have um, we can't mostly can't afford to live there even. So, Uh,
0: yeah. It's such a beautiful area, too. I mean, I've been out there, and it just like kind of crushes you with its beauty. It's heartbreaking (laughs) to think of the people of that place not really having access to it. Yeah, Yeah. the whole thing
2: that that we're seeing, um, and I I just saw an announcement about a a Bay Area tribe getting um, being given a mountain this morning. So what's Mm -hmm. happening, the great thing that's happening is that Um, As lands, people recognize that, you know, folks have been, um, you know, evicted from their lands and, you know, and lands become available. They're finding ways to create land trusts and doing creative things to restore tribal ownership and governance over those lands. So that's happening in California. It hasn't happened yet in our area, but um, it's happened a couple places in in the Bay Area, which is amazing. And you know that's the only way that we're going to be restor- You know, have our ha- have our connection restored to the land because the federal government is a de- is totally a dead end. You know, we don't we don't expect to find any support there.
0: <laughs> I think that's a really important point to make and remember and reiterate all the time is that this is work that takes people individuals individual communities it takes us like wanting to see a different world and it takes us doing actions to create that
2: mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and even the smallest action you know toward toward this work is um it can be revolutionary
0: you
2: know
1: yeah, anyway. i mean i, I definitely would like to see more of that coalition work happening i mean it's. um the foundation of black and green, which is like the umbrella under which all these projects go is like an international like collection of anti-civilization groups. The um, like green scare really did a number on that, but uh, I, and I, I would like to see more of an alternative to, to even, you know, talking about the technology being used, like there's like the native land app, uh, which you know people can <laughs> use to find out where native land is on or who, whose land are on. But even with that, like, a lot of the resources immediately go to tribal governments, which yeah. can be a whole other issue. Yeah, uh, totally. So it's like, you know, having alternative coalitions and also, again, like, how do we embrace the complexity in our narratives rather than just being like, oh, a Native American, like, they, like, that, like some flattened experience or that mm-hmm. all things are equal in terms of representation and governance or...
2: Career. Yeah, it's yeah. Get to know the local people. I'm I'm doing a project for Nike right now, and that was the first thing I said to them was because um, they have a Native American line. I don't know if you knew that, and wow. I said yeah, and um, it's called N7. It's beautiful, and they have a, an incredibly smart, talented Native designer. Um, and oh. she and I were talking the other day, and I said, you know, what would be really important is to acknowledge the people of the land that Nike sits on. It's in, you know, in Beaverton, Oregon, right outside of Portland. And um, you, you guys have never had a Chinook line. Maybe you can. You know. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that that's key, right? Acknowledge yeah. the people of the land that you're on. Um, so many people don't even know who those people are, you know, and where are they? Where are those people? And are they all part of a federally recognized Group or are they ma- a marginalized group? You're right about the Native Land app. It's a great place to start, but it's not comprehensive, right? It it does have mostly the federally recognized tribes and um and and the you know the the people who have arisen as the experts, right? And those you know they're it's a very complex issue, so you, you might have to dig in a little deeper than than the app, you know. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a, a great way to get started. Who are the people of the land, and how can you support their efforts rather than I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to see if I can get some Indians to participate? You know, that's
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the trend right now. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, getting... that's not a good it's not a good trend. We need to <laughs> we need that to be. <laughs> we need something much richer than that. Yeah, yeah, but
1: I do think it's as <laughs> funny as a random random fact in there that, uh, the Nike, uh, native line, uh, first heard about, it. I mean, I think it's, it's been some time since it's been out. Uh, but I think that one of the funny things about it was that, uh, I don't know if they're still doing it the same way. They initially launched it, but they're like, well we noticed native Americans have a wider foot and they were, so the yeah. shoe is going to have a wider toe box. So it's like the origins of the barefoot shoe was like, Hmm, for some reason, People who don't try to jam their foot into a non foot shaped shoe, like, we need to make a shoe for this. It's like, you know, maybe maybe just make foot shaped shoes. But, <laughs> like, Native people, like, well, Native people still have this. So, let's give it. So, but it's just, I don't know, it's funny.
2: It is. Yes, I know the one you're talking about. It was also, I mean, so many of the elders on uh, reser- in reservation communities have diabetes and have issues with their feet. And so it had to do with that, too, making a shoe that would be comfortable for for folks who can never find a shoe that's comfortable. So, yeah, but um, they're, I'm going to help them make sure that their, their designs, the symbols they use and stuff, aren't appropriative and... Um, yeah, I'm like,
0: okay, sure, awesome. Good on you for for wanting to do do it right. Well, you know? I mean, Dina, your work is just so powerful, and um, I hope we can continue talking to you as we. Hopefully, that's gonna be the first of many conversations mm-hmm. as we sort of go forward. And the world is looking very different these days, so I think there is an opportunity to um, to go somewhere with that. And I think people are listening. Some people, at least, are listening in a way maybe they haven't been before. Um, so thank you so much for talking to us. It's you just bet. a million thank yous. It's been absolutely wonderful. So much food for thought. Well, if I if I ever get my podcast
2: up and running, you go you go my first <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you guys are... <laughs>
0: Thank you. We're just absolutely honored. And, um, as far as continuing the conversation, if you do come up with some ideas for ways people can contribute or things that you need, please let us know. And we will make that public to our listeners and, um, we'll just go on from here.
2: Sounds great. By all means, let, let your listeners know my, my website and my email address and I'd welcome any, any feedback or support in that
0: way. Why don't you go ahead and give us your email address right now? The the best one to reach you at. So it's just Dina Dart at gmail.com. So it's D-E-A-N-A-D-A-R-T-T,
2: One N two Ts at gmail.com. And then my website is um liveoaknative.com.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Um and we encourage everybody to check those out and to get this conversation going. It's it, like we said, it's 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 a conversation that's going to take all of us. It's um it's there's action that needs to be taken and that's what we're we're ready to do we need to be we need healthy, work again. towards balance again yeah that's right <laughs> shumawish oh. shumawish tipa shumawish oh so beautiful dina yes. thank you guys thank you so much enjoy your puppies sorry we stole her puppies <laughs>
2: i'm gonna go out into my garden okay, okay have a great afternoon
0: have a beautiful you day too.
2: thank you yep. very much that was amazing
0: mm-hmm.
2: take care take bye-bye it
1: bye well i hope you all enjoyed that interview Mm -hmm. we definitely did Mm -hmm. it was very good for us and i thought just we're super eager to to get dina back on again Mm -hmm. um yeah so we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode here and
0: um yeah we just wanted to say too that uh if you enjoy the episode and you enjoy the interview with dina please share it with people talk about it talk about dina's work Um, part of our interest in bringing people in for interviews is that we get to sort of spotlight what people are doing and um you know how they're doing their work in the world and i think one of the best things we can do is uh help each other spread the word about all of that so um talk about it yeah talk about it. share it
1: this and all of our other projects it's really a weird world with technology where everything is available to everybody but fucking algorithms
0: Mm-hmm. Those
1: fucking algorithms make it so hard to get this stuff out there. So, please share it, talk about it, spread it with your friends. The website's blackandgreenpress.org. It has the books. some writings. Primalanarchy.org is the podcast. It has all the past episodes. They're also on all the major pod- podcast platforms. And also the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, which we are a part of. We
0: love Channel Zero.
1: Way to go, Channel 0 Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, My website is kevintucker.org. Natasha's is Mm natashatucker.org. And, uh, yeah, you can also find links for supporting our work through those pages, uh, including a Patreon. Natasha's will be up at some point, but also we will have the Kickstarter up very soon. And so we hope that people who listen to this spread the word. So thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it, got something from it, maybe got angry, whatever you want to do. Keep it going, keep moving forward, keep the discussion going. You can write us at the end at blackandgreenpress.org. dot org. That is the end at blackandgreenpress.org. dot org. There's a mailing list on blackandgreenpress.org. dot uh, org. Not not too heavy. We we'll try and keep people up on the projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening.
0: Thank you. It's going down and you're invited for what they
2: selling we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding
1: there's only fighting or dying
2: it's going down and you're invited for what they selling we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding there's only fighting
1: or dying It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, check out our online store for ways to donate, and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.